0: Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we are back in our study of the book of Mark. Where we're looking at how Jesus invites us to live in the present with a perspective anchored in his everlasting kingdom. Man, it is awesome to be with you. Can you all thank our choir and our worship leaders this morning just for just giving us that reminder that we gather together to rehearse the gospel. We gather together to encourage one another and spur one another on to hope in Christ and to remember that one day, we are gonna be seated at his throne uh, with people from every tribe and nation and tongue to worship at the feet of King Jesus. Well, my name is Will Taburen. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. So glad that you've chosen to join us this morning. I wanna invite you today to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, and while we're continuing our study of Mark, I'm excited to share with you that this morning, we are going to start what we're calling just a three-week, short little mini-series within the larger series, where we turn our attention now to Mark chapter 13. As we saw from last week at the end of Mark chapter 10, Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. We see that he, for the third time, has been pretty clear with his disciples. He's like, this is what's gonna happen. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be turned over, I'm gonna be mocked, I'm gonna be beaten, I'm gonna be crucified, and I am going to rise again. And there in chapter 11, we see the triumphal entry into chapter 12, where we see Jesus making his way into the temple where he continues to teach, he continues to instruct, and he continues to confront the religious leaders there who've turned the temple into a mockery of God's original design and intent. And so now we come to the beginning of chapter 13, where Jesus has now left the temple for the last time. And as you think about the week of of the Passion Week, the the week leading up to Jesus' death, this is taking place on Wednesday. The next day, he would go and he would prepare the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And then on Friday, he would be crucified. And on Sunday, he would be resurrected. And so here we find in this moment, Jesus' last experience with his disciples in the temple and they make their way to the Mount of Olives. And there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus delivers what most scholars and pastors and theologians refer to as the Olivet Discourse. Now, I wanna do something a little bit different this morning. As we start this three-week little series in Mark 13, I wanna read the entire scripture to you. I want us to hear it all together as one unit, as Jesus would have spoken it and as Mark had recorded it, And so, I want us to hear it all, and then I want us to begin to dive into that together. So, if you have your Bible, you can turn it on, you can turn with me, you can read it up here on the screen. But I invite you to follow along with me as we see this incredible teaching from our Lord. And the scripture says And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, well, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. They are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on your guard. <laughs> I've told you all these things beforehand, verse 24. But in those days... After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, But only the Father, be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, eats with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the morning or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. I think I said in the morning twice. It's actually in the evening and then in the morning lest you suddenly lest he come suddenly and find you asleep and what i say to you i say to all stay awake this is the word of the lord so let's pray together our heavenly father as we do after the reading of your word we ask you now to illuminate the scriptures to us through the power of your holy spirit father i pray that you would give us in this moment minds that are open to hear and hearts that are willing to receive the word of the lord And that you would grant unto us faith and courage to take the steps of obedience that you're calling us to take in light of your word, which is your revelation of yourself to us. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, God, even now as I stand before your people would be uh, pleasing to you for you are my rock and my redeemer. Father, we pray for Ryan this morning. We pray for Samuel. That we pray for our language congregations that are gathering. Father, we ask for a moving of your spirit in our church, and we pray that in the churches in our community, in the churches that we're partnering to plan. Father, I think of Jeremy Woods in Myrtle Beach and Jonathan Linker in South Carolina. I think of Tanner Hogue in Virginia, and I think of uh, Joseph Anderson who's preparing to plan in Atlanta. God, we ask you to work and move in those places God, that King Jesus might be lifted up. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, you know, as we jump into Mark chapter 13, let me share with you that I am not a very handy person. And by not very handy, I mean not at all handy. Julie is way more handy than I am and I have been a constant source of disappointment to her over these 30 years as I am compared to her father who can fix just about anything. And so I get excited when I fix the smallest things in my house as as if I have just solved a really complex problem. My lack of handiness is often most evident in my inability to understand written instructions. Written instructions that are pointed and put in front of me. And I know that they are supposed to be written on a third grade level. So I don't know what that says about me and my inability to understand that. I remember it was a a week last summer where I was weed eating and of course, those stupid machines ran out of like the weed eating string, right? And so I'm like, surely, surely I can fix this. So I begin disassembling the weed eater, right? Thinking that this is not gonna be that hard. I get the weed eater string and after about 30 minutes of trying to figure it out, I take all the pieces and I go up on top of the deck where the table is and I put them on the table and I say, Julie, I need your help. And I slide the instructions across the table to her and in like 30 seconds later, Mrs. Wizard has them all figured out and everything's put back together, right? now you say, well, what does that have to do with Mark chapter 13? Some of you feel about Mark 13 like I do about instructions that are given to you. You look at them, you read it, and then you're like, what in the world did I just read, and what does it really mean? Like, what does it really mean? What does it mean? When Jesus here talks about wars and rumors of wars, what does he mean when he say nation is going to rise up against nation? What does he mean when he says, be on the lookout for the abomination of desolation? What is that all about? And what does he mean when he says, let the reader understand? Why is it going to be worse for women? Why does he say it's gonna be hard for women who are pregnant and nursing? Why is it better that it not happen in the winter? Who are these false crys? Christ that he's talking about? Who are these false prophets that are gonna rise up and deceive? And when is all of that going to take place? Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, this all seems honestly a bit strange, especially since everything else we've studied in Mark has seemed really pretty clear to us. I love, and we've talked about this, how fast-paced Mark's gospel is, how to the point and direct it is. He says, listen, this is what it is, and this is what it means. And you see this really clear and vibrant teaching of Jesus that's not that hard to understand. And then all of a sudden, you come to Mark 13, and you're like, what in the world? Like, what is this? When you read this, this now, in light of everything we else have read, everything else we've read, seems difficult. and it seems very different. And so let's be honest. it seems that way, because it is. It's difficult. and it's very different. And I'll say to you that lots of scholarly work has been written trying to get to the bottom of what Jesus really means here in Mark chapter 13 and paralleled, which is important. And you should read this as you're studying it. Go read in in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Luke chapter 21. You're gonna see the parallel passages there in the synoptic gospels. And so you see, what does he mean? So today, what I wanna do as we begin this short little mini series is I want to slow down. And I'd like to do for us today an overview before we jump into the specifics over the next couple of weeks. And I wanna share with you from the jump today that what makes this text so difficult is in part because Jesus is explaining and describing for his disciples, and now for us, events that would transpire after his resurrection and after his ascension. We see there in verse one, the disciples are marveling as they come out of the temple, right? They're looking around and they're questioning and they're saying, man, Jesus, look at all these beautiful stones. Look at this majestic building. And you have to know and understand that the temple, I mean, it was an incredible sight to see. It was the center, it was the pinnacle of Jewish worship. It was the pinnacle in Israel. And so they're marveling at this. And there in verse one, They're like, man, look at this beautiful building. Look at these beautiful stones. And then Jesus says to them, well, yeah, you see all of that? There's coming a day in the very near future where all of that's gonna be turned down, tore down. All of that is going to be destroyed. And so as you can imagine, they do what any of us would do. They're like looking at it, seeing it with their eyes. They're seeing its majestic beauty. They're hearing from Jesus that all of this is going to be torn down and not one stone is going to remain. So that picks their interest. And now they're like, well, tell me more. When is all this gonna happen? What should we be on the lookout for? How will all of this take place? And so Jesus then begins to describe what is going to happen in the future. Now I wanna go ahead with you and I wanna spill the beans a little bit and share with you that I believe that Jesus is speaking directly about two future events in the history of Israel. The first event would take place in AD 70, where we see the destruction of the temple we know that there was a Jewish uprising. And in order to quell that Jewish uprising, the Romans thwarted that movement. And by thwarting the movement, here's what they did. They came into Jerusalem and they tore the entirety of the temple down and they burned it. The only thing that remains of the temple is what we know to be the Western Wall, which served as the foundation even for the temple. And there you see today, the Jewish people still going to the Western Wall to pray. And so we, I believe that Jesus in part is prophesying about what would take place just decades later when the temple would ultimately be destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. But it also seems very clear to us through the reading of Mark chapter 13 that he's also describing for us not just the destruction of his temple, not just how difficult things are gonna be in the future, but he's describing for them his second coming his eventual return again as the coming reigning king. And we see that very clearly in verse 25. And they say, and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And that seems to be made clear to us when we read verses 32 through 37. When Jesus doesn't give us cryptic language, he just says, listen, you need to stay alert. You need to be awake. You need to be watchful for these future events that are gonna unfold. And then you need to be looking for my glorious return like the master of a house who knows his master is returning. And so the master is watchful. The master is waiting. The master is looking. Now, stay with me here. All right. In order to describe those two events, the destruction of the temple and his second return or second coming, Jesus speaks both prophetically and apocalyptically. He speaks prophetically and apocalyptically, and here's what I mean. When Jesus speaks prophetically, he's making predictions about future historical events. Prophetic language typically in the scripture is usually accompanied with calls to faithfulness to God, faithfulness to his promises. So he's describing for them a difficult time when the temple will be destroyed. That seems evident to me there in verse two. Do you see these great buildings? They will not be left here. Not one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. And I think he's also describing circumstantially what it's gonna be like for them before he returns. He's describing how suffering and hardship for both Jews and Gentiles alike is going to transpire. Look with me at verse nine and just just notice. Here's what I mean by that. In verse nine, he says, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. In the synagogues is where the Jewish people would go and you will stand before governors and kings, which speaks to a different type of authority, which would have been for the Gentiles all for my sake, to bear witness before them. So he's saying to everyone, to Jew and Gentile alike, things are going to be increasingly more difficult. There's gonna be hardship. That's why Peter, I think, would say, listen, don't think it's strange, my brothers, when the fiery trials come upon you as if something strange were happening to you. The more you walk with Christ, the longer history goes on before he returns, things are going to be hard. He's describing times of destruction. He's describing times of deception, nations raising against nations countries against countries, earthquakes, all these things, wars and rumors of wars. He's describing this in a very prophetic way. But I also want you to notice that he speaks apocalyptically. And here's what I mean by that. When he speaks apocalyptically, he's also referring to future events, but he does so by using symbolic and really vivid imagery that focuses on the end of time. God's divine judgment and the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. You see that and you hear that when you read like verse 24. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun, you can kind of hear the apocalyptic nature of this. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers and the heaven will be shaken. I mean, it kind of reminds you of what you read in Revelation. Right when you read Revelation 6 to 19 to hear 6 through 19 and hear the apocalyptic nature of Christ and, and the difficulty that is going to take place before Christ finally establishes forever his rule and his reign. And I think we can all agree, having read Revelation and even reading aspects of this, that reading and hearing apocalyptic teaching can be really difficult to understand and to apply. And so it begs the question for us, how should we read and understand a text like this without coming to the place where you feel like I do when I'm fixing the weed eater? I want to take the instructions and I want to set it aside and I want to ignore it. And I want to move on to the things that I know how to do, as limited as they are, right? I want to focus to what is easy to understand. So what should I do? How should I approach this? How can we not discount passages of scripture, parts of the Bible that we find difficult and hard to understand? Well, when we come to really difficult texts like this one, I want you to remember a passage of scripture. I want you to remember what Paul writes to Timothy towards the end of his life. When Paul writes and says to him in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when he says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Let me remind us all that this text, as difficult as it is, is given to us for a reason. It's inspired by God. Inspired, given to men, written, and we believe that it is the inerrant and infallible word of God and is profitable for us for instruction, for correction, for rebuking, for training in righteousness that we might be complete. And so we have to remember that this is given to us for a reason. And so I wanna give you a principle this morning that I think can be really helpful when studying both prophetic and apocalyptic teaching and writing and difficult passages of scripture that are hard to understand. And this isn't original with me, but here it is. When reading difficult passages, I wanna encourage you to remember that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. The main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. Let me illustrate the point this way. It is clear in the midst of a difficult passage of scripture like this one, that we see, if not the dominant thought, at least certainly one of two dominant thoughts, and that is Jesus is returning. He's coming back and he leaves no doubt in the minds of his disciples that there is coming a day when he will return. And you see that very clearly in verse 25. The plain thing in this text is that Jesus is returning. So he wants to encourage them and he's exhorting them and he's reminding them, listen, be faithful and endure to the end. And church family, that is the main thing in the text and that is the plain thing in the text. As I reminded you and mentioned before, there are volumes of scholarly work that is written on this text with lots of ink spilled outlining convictions on the details surrounding the return of Christ For example, there are those who are gonna look at this and they are gonna say everything that Jesus writes here, and you might've read and heard people teach like this. Everything Jesus writes here or speaks here in Mark 13 is all dealing with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So everything has that historical context in mind. You're gonna read other scholars, other pastors and theologians who say, listen, it doesn't have anything really to do with AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. It has everything to do with his future coming. And so what we know is that there's some who are here and some who are here and they disagree. And I wanna say to us all, there are pastors and theologians and scholars who absolutely love God's word, who believe that God's word is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is authoritative in all things and trust it and stand in pulpits and deliver it and teach it and champion it, who disagree on the nature of difficult and hard texts like this and have come now to different conclusions and embrace different approaches to their understanding of Christ's return. But do you know what they don't disagree about? They don't disagree with the fact that Christ is coming back, that he's coming back. That's the plain thing, and that's the main thing. As one pastor said, they don't disagree on the main thing. They disagree on the details, hear me, on the details that are subservient to the main thing. Now, don't get me wrong, and don't misquote me, okay? It is good, it is helpful, it is profitable to wrestle with the details, to seek understanding, and to have convictions, even strong convictions about some of these hard teachings like we find in Mark chapter 13. But I believe, church family, that there is wisdom in being charitable to those who may come to different conclusions regarding the specific details of the return of Christ. And I wanna illustrate it this way. In the Old Testament, Right, you have all this teaching that is prophesying about everything's pointing forward to Christ's first coming, right? You remember when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he's resurrected from the grave and he's walking with the two guys and he's like unpacking all of the Old Testament and all of a sudden the light bulb goes off for them. They're like, oh, now it all makes sense, right? They begin to get it. They begin to understand, right? All of this is written, things in Isaiah, things in the Psalms, things in, in some of the prophetic literature pointing to the first coming of Christ. And with all the information that they had, there were still people who just didn't understand it all, right? They didn't understand what it really meant that the king was coming in his first advent. They didn't really expect this king to be born in a manger and they didn't expect him to be lowly and they didn't expect him to be poor and no place to lay his head. They didn't quite grasp all of those things. They didn't understand who he was. In fact, we see that clearly from the disciples who it took years for them to begin to understand and filter all that they had read and and understood from their teaching growing up in the Old Testament to now understanding who Jesus is. And it wasn't until he actually came and it wasn't until he was crucified and buried and resurrected that all the things that were written about his first advent became clear. And so now looking back and reading back on that, now it's like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense what Isaiah says in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. Now it makes perfect sense what we read in the Psalms and what we read in the other prophetic literature because the event has happened. In a similar way, as we come to the thinking and the understanding of the future return of Christ, why would it be any different? That things are not going to be perfectly clear to us in all these ways until the event itself actually happens, until it occurs, until it occurs. And so it's gonna take the reality of the event to bring clarity about what's been written and prophesied. And that's why I I wanna slow down even further here. And I wanna take what might seem like a little bit of a right turn. That's why I I think it is so important for us to understand the importance of doing what I wanna call and help us understand as theological triage, which is simply another way of saying The importance of rightly ordering doctrine. You see, when you think of triage, I bet most of you, most of you think of a medical situation. You think about going to the emergency room. When you walk into an emergency room, you find someone there who is doing what? Well, they're triaging the patient's. A patient comes in and that nurse or that doctor there or that person is responsible for determining which of these needs is most important in the emergency room. That's why when you go to the emergency room, it's filled with people who are coughing and sniffling and got their legs with, you know, their ankle wrapped in ice because some triage nurse has said, the guy who just arrived here with the chest pains is more important than the person who's sitting there with the twisted ankle, And so they've triaged, they've made a determination and said, well, which is most important? And I would say to you and argue that we need to do the same thing with doctrine. And so I'd like to give you a brief framework that I think can help us rightly order doctrine, a way to think about doing theological triage. So how should we do that? Well, I think first, it's incumbent upon us to understand that there are first order doctrines These are doctrines that are central to Christianity and essential to being a Christian. These are things that are necessary without which there is no Christianity. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul comes to them after Jesus? I mean, certainly this is all after Jesus has been resurrected and Paul gives this letter and then at the end of the letter, he's like, remember, I'm coming to you and I'm sharing with you that which is of what, church? First importance, these are the most important things. And then he says, namely that Jesus was crucified, buried and resurrected and appeared to all of these eyewitnesses. Listen, there are certain things if we don't believe that we're just not Christians. If we don't believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man, if we don't believe that he was virgin born, if we don't believe that he led the sinless life and when he went to the cross, he was dying in our place. Scholarly wise, theologically, we would say that's the Penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Simple way, Jesus died in our place. If we don't believe in a bodily resurrection, we're not Christians. This is the essence of Christianity. These are the most important doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the authority and inerrancy and sufficiency of the scriptures. First order doctrines that we have to hold on to. But then there are also second order doctrines. You say, well, well, what's a second order doctrine? A second order doctrine are doctrines that that need agreement to be members and covenant together of the same church. Probably the most simple picture of that for us would be what we believe about baptism. I have Presbyterian friends that I love deeply, that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, they're Christians. I mean, they're absolutely Christians, but we have very different beliefs about when and how to baptize. We believe that baptism should follow conversion, meaning should follow the moment someone's professed Christ as king and given evidence of Christ changing their life. And we do that in a particular way. We baptize by what's called immersion, placing people under the water, symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and raising them from the water. And we believe convictionally that this is important for us as a church because we can't have like different views on what this means. That on some hand, we're gonna baptize infants and on other hands, well, we're gonna baptize by immersion following conversion. So that is a second order doctrine. Another one would be, well, how should the church be governed? What role does the congregation play? What role does the pastor play? Are there other governing authorities in the church? Those things we would say, you know, we disagree on that. And because we disagree on that, we probably can't covenant together and we probably can't plant churches together. We're just gonna see that differently. But then there are third order doctrinal issues. And third order doctrinal issues are those doctrines that need agreement. No, I'm sorry. Are doctrines that faithful Christians have disagreed on while remaining unified in the same church. And I believe, church family, this is where the doctrine of the end times and eschatology should reside. Al Mohler, who is president of the Southern Theological Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, he wrote this. He said, Christians who affirm The bodily, historical, and victorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ may differ over timetable and sequence without rupturing the fellowship of the church. You hear that? That Christians who believe in the bodily, historical return of the Lord, which is what we've said, this is the main thing that Christians who believe, on this can disagree over the timetable and the sequence without rupturing the fellowship of the church. Christians, he says, may find themselves in disagreement over any number of issues related to the interpretation of difficult texts or the understanding of matters of common disagreement. Nevertheless, standing together on issues of more urgent importance, believers are able to accept one another without compromise when third order issues are in question. You understand what he's saying? He's saying there are some issues doctrinally that we can sit down with and have a cup of coffee over and we can wrestle with and we can have strong conviction. And you may think this way about these aspects of the return of the Lord. I may think these things on the return of the Lord. The reality of it is we can be in the same church together in fellowship with one another because we both agree that Jesus is coming back historically and bodily and will reign forever and ever and establish his kingdom. And with that in mind, Now we can begin to rightly order the doctrine. I struggled, I was talking to Stephen about this and I was like, I don't think I'm gonna say this, but I think I'm gonna say it. (laughs) Here's why this matters, I think, is so important. When we take third order doctrinal issues, like the one we're talking about, and we make that a first order issue, you know what happens? We begin to slide into legalism. We begin to slide into legalism and fundamentalism. But when we take first order issues and those first order issues are no longer first order issues, you know what's gonna happen? We're gonna slide into liberalism and nothing's gonna be important to us. And I would say to you, if we lose the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that he died in our place, that he led a sinless life, that he resurrected bodily from the grave, if we lose the doctrine of the Trinity, if we lose these things, I'll be honest with you, we just ought to shut our doors and go home because we've lost What is essential for us to be followers of Jesus Christ? And we cling to those things. I'll be honest with you, that's why I'm excited that we are teaching this class on doctrine tonight, both at our Peace Haven and West campuses. We're starting a a 10-week class where we explore 10 essential doctrines of the Christian faith with the goal of helping us know and worship God more fully. We're gonna be using John Nielsen's book, Knowing God's Truth, and I can't wait to be a part of it, and I hope you'll join us as we study these things together. So as we study Mark 13 together, let's remember as we dive in these next couple of weeks that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And so again, the main and the plain thing that Jesus wants us to see here in the Olivet Discourse is that certain events are gonna transpire in history. The temple will be destructed and he will return. And until then, the main thing that he wants us to see is endure faithfully to the very end. And we're going to look at that more fully in the coming weeks, but I think we'll, we see Jesus encouraging his disciples and us in, us in three very plain ways. If you'll give me the liberty of taking just a couple more minutes with you, I want to share those with you. As we launch out into this study, here are three very plain things Jesus is exhorting us to First is he saying to them and to us, stay competent because God is sovereignly ruling and reigning. You know, we can't help but read this and remind ourselves that the one who created all things, who entered into our story and died in our place is promising us that he will return again to forever rule and reign. He is the God of the past and the present and the future so we can live with confidence knowing nothing that we have faced, are facing, or will face is outside of his sovereign rule and his sovereign care. He wants us to know that things are going to get increasingly more difficult and suffering is going to come. But stay confident, Jesus says, because I am your help. And in my time, I am coming again. I think you know that one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 121, where the scripture says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And he says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Calvary family, we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is reigning on his throne, who is neither sleeping nor slumbering. So whatever you have been through, are going through, or will go through, it is not outside of his watchful care and his watchful eye, and it is not outside of the promises that say to us, I will work it all together towards my redemptive purposes. So he's saying to them and to us, stay confident but he's also saying to us, stay focused. Keep your eyes on the eternal and not the temporal. There's a clear reminder here from the text that for the Christian, we need to strive to bring what we know to be true of Christ and his eternal reign to bear on our lives today. What is eternal? Bringing it to bear on what is temporal. I love how Dr. Jason Meyer said it. He said, Christians have an urgent need to bring forever forever, to bear on what is right now. And that's because as he points out, the things that are most permanent, the things that are most real are not temporal things. They're eternal things. It's not hard for us to see the real danger of focusing on the temporal, right? When we set our hope on the here and now, we can be confident that one of two things are gonna happen. We will either deceive ourselves with a false sense of security believing that, man, if we crack the code in this life, this is where real hope and life and purpose comes from, only to find out that in the end, it's gonna disappoint us because we can't take it with us. I mean, if we needed a clear picture of that, I mean, just think about the temple. Think about what it would have been like for the Jewish people who, man, came to the temple to make their sacrifices, to see its beauty and majesty, only to recognize a few decades later that it was all destroyed. And now they find themselves under the rule of an oppressive regime. You deceive, we deceive ourselves with this false sense of security or we deceive ourselves with a false sense of hopelessness. I have no doubt that there are some here who when you look at your life, you feel like, man, I've been dealt a really crummy deck. It feels filled with suffering and disappointment. It's filled with unfulfilled hopes and dreams and desires which can lead us to the place where we think to ourselves, man, this is utter hopelessness. And I wanna say to you, don't be deceived. This is not the end. The king is coming back. All things evil will be undone. And somehow, in some way, the depth of the intimacy that we have with him will be that much deeper for having gone through the suffering of this age the suffering of this stage. So stay focused on what is most real and eternal. I love how Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, hold everything earthly with a loose hand, but grasp eternal things with a death-like grip. Hold everything here loosely, but hold on to the eternal with a death-like grip. And then lastly, stay alert. Stay alert, be about the mission we must be about the main thing. We must be about what God has called us to do, to be conformed into his likeness, to go and make disciples. We shouldn't be found looking to the sky, trying to figure out which sign is next and quibbling over the exact nature of his return. Let me say to us, Jesus is coming back, and until then, we must be alert and we must be preparing for his return, preparing by stewarding well all that's been entrusted to us, preparing by sharing the good news of the gospel with others, preparing by making disciples and planting churches and taking the gospel to the hard places, to the ends of the earth where there are unreached and unengaged people groups who have no access to the gospel. You want to know what we ought to be about? We ought to be about that. Stay alert. Be on mission. And that's why I believe the chapter ends with this exhortation. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Calvary family, Jesus is coming back. So let's stay confident in a sovereign rule and redemptive plan. Jesus is coming back. So let's stay focused on the eternal and not the temporal. Jesus is coming back. So let's be alert and let's be all about the mission. Amen. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll dive into more and wrestle with this hard text. But until then, Let's have wisdom. Let's have wisdom and competence. Let's rightly order doctrine doctrine with theological triage. On the things that are essential, let's stand firm. The things that are non-essential, let's have charity. And above all, let's make much of King Jesus. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. If you're not already, we'd love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.